I'm gonna hide this tape when I'm finished. If none of us make it, at least there'll be some kind of record. The storm's been hitting us hard now for 48 hours. We still have nothing to go on. One other thing, I think it rips through your clothes when it takes you over. Windows found some shredded long johns, but the name tag was missing. They could be anybody's. Nobody... Nobody trusts anybody now. We're all very tired. Nobody trusts anybody now. There's nothing else I can do. Just wait. R.J. McCready, helicopter pilot, U.S. Outpost number 31. months back we decided to do something a little different and by several months back i do mean what a year or so something like that anyway it's that time of year again uh to do a little something different in that instead of having a guest on to discuss a particular television show brent and i are gonna talk about movies we love movies and uh we're gonna do another one of our uh Doctor Who double features, where we come up with a, a movie that we like, or just a movie that we think pairs well with an episode of Doctor Who that we like. So, Brent, you ready? I'm ready. I'm going to start us off. Uh, and I'm going to start us off because I I was trying to come up with uh, an interesting pairing. Some I was looking at over all the movies that I like really love, and I am going to be talking about one of my favorite movies of all time. But at the same time that we first discussed doing this episode, I was listening to a, uh, a podcast on the career of uh, one Mr. John Carpenter, director mm-hmm. extraordinaire. And um, I started watching, going back kind of through his catalog of films, and I started with uh, the very first one that he did in college, which is a, a little film that came out in 1974 called Dark Star. Now, Bomb, consider this next question very carefully. What is your one purpose in life? To explode, of course. And you can only do it once, right? That is correct. And you wouldn't want to explode on the basis of false data, would you? Of course not. Well then, you've already admitted that you have no real proof of the existence of the outside universe. Yes, well... So you have no absolute proof that Sergeant Pinback ordered you to detonate. I recall distinctly the detonation order. My memory is good on matters like these. Of course you remember it, but... But all you're remembering is merely a series of sensory impulses which you now realize have no real definite connection with, with outside reality. True. But since this is so, I have no proof that you are really telling me all this. And that is the first movie we're going to be talking about today. Brent, uh, you have just watched Dark Star for the first time. What did you think? <laughs> well, as a bit of a background... We have a local theater here called uh, the Alamo Draft House, which is nationwide, but we have one right up the street, and it's become my second home over the last four years. They show old movies, brand new movies simultaneously, and this summer they had a special John Carpenter series showing a bunch of his films, and this was the first one they showed. And I didn't go because the trailer I saw looked horrible, and I was right. (laughs) 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 The movie (laughs) was a good call on my part. Uh, this movie was really bad to me. Um, I don't quite grasp the concept of so good it was bad, because to me, if a movie is is bad, it's bad. 
You know, there's there there may be some something to chuckle at here and there because it's poorly made, but that can't sustain me for an entire film. Um, but I did sit through this whole film for this podcast. You're welcome, listeners. <laughs> and there were only two things about it that I found very entertaining. First, hold on. Before you, s- you go into listing of what it is, let's talk a little okay. bit about what the film actually is. All right. Let's um, first off, and I did mention this, this is a student film. So this is something that John Carpenter did in college. Um, for about $1,000, he and his co-creator, Dan O'Bannon, who would go on to uh, an illustrious career in film. Um, and you can actually see the seeds of several of Dan O'Bannon's projects, including uh, a film known as Alien, that, you know, did okay. Um, this is a film that they did at school. Um, it's about a spaceship that flies to different planets that are potentially going to go out of orbit and crash into the sun, therefore causing... Uh, supernovas which may or may not threaten future Earth colonies and so their job is to blow them up uh, beforehand and they are traveling FTL faster than light and so uh, time moves differently for them than it does uh, the rest of the folks around it so in the intro we get like an idea that it's been like 20 something years on the planet Earth since they've been gone but for them it's only been three and at the beginning of the film, we find out that they have gone through uh, a number of tragedies. Their captain has been dead and put in cryo storage. They have some radiation leaks. Uh, yeah, so it, they're not in a great situation. And here's the thing. Uh, when you're putting together a, a film in college, you are not going to be able to afford professional actors. Uh, so uh, Carpenter and O'Bannon essentially... Uh, well, Bannon in particular uh, is going to be one of the actors in this film. Not a great actor. Um, not even a good actor. No one is a good actor in this film. Uh, and I think that's perfectly safe to, to say this movie looks cheap. Um, and at one point in time, someone went, wow, you know, your 30 minutes that you have is pretty decent. Let's go ahead and give you a little bit of extra money and see if you can stretch it to a full 80 minutes for a film. And they did by recording new stuff and then putting it in to stretch the initial plot, uh, which is about a bomb refusing to leave and having a countdown, uh, an intelligent bomb. They have so that argument about uh, kind of life and death and the meaning of existence. So that is the film. If it sounds intriguing to you, do I recommend you go out and see it? Yeah, sure, especially if you like John Carpenter stuff because uh, as a film person, I'm a completionist. Is it a good film? It's really not. Um... But I find it charming as someone who went to kind of went to film school and was a film student. I understand uh, what it takes to kind of put that sort of thing together. So uh, for me, having watched it while I was in film school, there's a little bit of nostalgia to it. If you don't go in knowing that information, boy, howdy, I imagine. Uh, it wasn't particularly great. But Brent, you said there was at least two things that you liked about it. What were those two things? Well, three now that we've been talking. I, I would say coming off of what you just said, there are some really good ideas in here. Mm-hmm. I think if it were to be updated, it would probably be a really good movie. But I don't know if you've seen this, but on the Blu-ray release, there is an opening letter from Dan O'Bannon explaining everything um, behind the scenes of the movie. And saying that it was intended to be a comedy and nobody got it. Um, if you haven't seen that letter, it's great. You should read it. Um, it says, um, I challenge you to look for two things while you're watching this. First, which actor played four parts, which was him. <laughs> <laughs> and which actor and in which scene was somebody blazed out of their minds on LSD? Yeah, I imagine it's probably the answer is all of them. Um, it, it, when I mentioned this to you before you got a chance to watch it, I think you said it, it looked like stoners in space. It is essentially, um, sort of what is the, the, a satire on kind of like the idea that humanity reaches this limit where we can, we can travel faster than light and we go to different worlds and we have hyper-intelligent computers and yet it's still a job. Right, and so that idea of white collar workers in space, gosh, where have we seen that done more successfully? Oh yeah, Alien by Dan O'Bannon, right? Like this is the seeds of so many different things that we love, and yeah, I recognize that it's not a great film, but I also recognize the seeds of uh, great films within it, and for me, that's really charming. And actually, 
on this viewing, I haven't seen it. It's probably been 15, 20 years since I'd seen it last. Uh, on this viewing, I got a really extra special treat because uh, one of my favorite bands from the last 20 years, a band called Pinback, uh, it never occurred to me that they got their name from one of their characters in the movie until I started recognizing uh, audio samples from the songs on their first couple of albums uh, in the movie. And I'm like, oh, so I did some research. And yes, it's one of their favorite movies. And so they, they sampled the film. So that was kind of nice, too. Um, I'm going to listen to their albums differently now. <laughs> but <laughs> All right. So you liked the Blu-ray. Last time I saw this, Blu-ray didn't exist. I think that's probably safe to say uh the the dvd copy that i have is from 99 right maybe blu-ray probably was coming out but i certainly didn't have a blu-ray player uh carpenter does the music for this film of course which he always does right but but even back not then, always not always we are going to be talking about a carpenter film that carpenter did not do the music for but oh but that's right yeah but mostly he does and i i didn't expect him to do it this early but he did and, uh, of course, it's great as always, except mm-hmm. for the part where he blatantly ripped off the Twilight Zone theme song. <laughs> <in the way. laughs> but, uh, the, yeah, the other entertaining part to me was the, the bomb alarm that sounded like a fart. Three, two, one, drop. Negative drop. I love the idea. There's so many really cool concepts in this. I... Uh, when I first heard about this film, being a Carpenter fan, um, my instructor at school was like, no, you have to see this. They also knew of my love of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, which is a um, a play, which is a takeoff on Hamlet. And there is a lot of discussion of the meaning of existence in it. And the sort of the last third act of the film is trying to convince a bomb that uh, not to go off um, because it doesn't know whether or not the order to go off uh, is real or not. Uh, because if it goes off, it's going to kill everybody. And uh, yeah, that I think that just the convert, the idea of having one a smart bomb uh, is years ahead of its time. Um, yeah. And it's really the other thing I kind of love about it again is just the makeshift level of it. As someone who tried to make space movies in school, um, what you have to like pull out of your garage and your cabinets to make it look futuristic. I mean, it's clearly a muffin tin strapped to the guy's chest. Um, uh, I can tell that the buttons they're using on their console are ice cube trays with a light bulb inside of them. I mean, it's it's a student film. Uh, I think the budget all told was like 6,000 uh, bucks, and that probably included advertising. So like, you can produce something like that for so very little, and I think it's incredibly entertaining. Um, but yeah, yeah, I you know, is it for everybody? No. But again, as a, um, a carpenter completionist, I, I think it's essential that you you see where these ideas sprung from. Um, so uh, I I still dig it, and I yeah I checked my phone while I was watching it, but I've seen it like t- <laughs> ten or fifteen times before, and it's slow. I mean, like the parts, the initial parts of the script, they I think they move, but then you know when you add twenty five minutes of a guy crawling through a, ha- a hallway chasing an alien who which is a beach ball let's <laughs> yeah, face it it's with a, feet. Spray, a spray painted <laughs> beach ball but <laughs> but again it's an alien crawling through these very small dark ducks and one person uh chasing after them in this kind of weird drippy uh spaceship uh, you know like it's it's all there it's all there so uh i have paired this but i was <laughs> i have paired this with uh, an episode from uh, series one of Doctor Who called Boomtown. I promise you I've changed since we last met, Doctor. There was this girl, just today, a young thing, something of a danger. She was getting too close. The bloodlust rising, just as the family had taught me I was going to kill without a thought. And then I stopped. She's alive somewhere right now. She's walking around this city because I can change. I did change. I know I can't prove it. I believe you. And you know I'm capable of better. It doesn't mean anything. I spared her life. You let one of them go, but that's nothing new. 
Every now and then a little victim's spared because she smiled, because he's got freckles, because they begged. And that's how you live with yourself. That's how you slaughter millions. Because once in a while, on a whim, if the wind's in the right direction, you happen to be kind. Only a killer would know that. Brent, can you guess why I paired Dark Star with Boomtown? You know, the whole time... Okay, I watched both of these back-to-back last night. And after Dark Star, I'd seen Boomtown before, but it's been a very long time, and I didn't remember much about it, just that it was about a uh, Slitheen. And <clears throat> so I'm watching Boomtown. I watched the entire episode, and when it was over, I was like, I really want to know what this connection is, but I'm not going to text Drew. We're just going to do it live while we record. So right. please tell me. <laughs> All right. So uh, there's a couple of things on it. Uh, one, it is about group dynamics. Both of the movie, Dark Star, is about failed group dynamics, uh, but... Uh, Boomtown is very much about the TARDIS team coming together and working correctly, right? So, you you know, you've got Jack, you've got Rose, you've got the Doctor, and they're firing on all cylinders. But Mickey comes in on that, and it's about someone who is being pushed outside of the group. And so Mickey, in many ways, is Talby, uh, the one who is in the airlock trying to repair things and no one's paying attention to him, mm-hmm. even though he, what he has to say is so very important. Two... Uh, you have a singular alien uh, in this that is giving the group the runaround and causing a lot of problems. Three, there's a lot of discussion about the nature of existing uh, and whether or not we are good or evil uh, and whether or not killing is correct. And we're talking about uh, these humans who are going out into space and they're blowing up whole planets. And they talk about a chance of intelligent life on these planets, but because those planets could potentially harm them in the future, they don't care. It's business to them. And in very much, the Slovene is like that, right? Um, and most importantly, the thing that I would have hoped you'd got on is both of them include surfboards that are used to oh. ride out explosions. <laughs> um, the model that um, that the Raxacoracophalopatorius forens have um, is... Uh, hiding this interstellar surfboard. But when the planet explodes, it actually is supposed to launch her into space. Uh, and they have a surfboard, a makeshift surfboard, that is used to kind of get away or ride the explosion of the exploding Dark Star. Spoilers for Dark Star, by the way, uh, as it f- goes into the planet. Uh, and I thought all four of those things worked really well. Um, also, both of them are very talky, like kind of low-budget episodes that mm-hmm. were sort of added. Though where Dark Star feels like a student film and the talking is kind of eh, I think Boomtown is a kind of a gem nestled in series one. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of the stories that I really enjoy the most. Uh, it's not that much action, but it, it, it covers some really weighty topics that Doctor Who hasn't really tackled before. And as a, a new fan, it, it kind of crystallized that Doctor Who, the Doctor themselves, you don't have to have crazy spy- sci-fi. You don't need to have your aliens in amazing outfits or even garbage outfits. Um, the fact that the Doctor is this being who values life, you can have these conversations. You can approach science fiction in a sort of a philosophical way. And I, I really appreciate that about the episode. You're not going to get as much, uh, wow, that's deep, man, from Dark Star. But the two of them, I think they actually uh, go together fairly well if you think about it. Yeah, now that you've explained those, I, um, I think I was on to the uh, the team dynamic. I yeah. did pick up on that, but uh, the others were. Really, um, now I now I get it. I totally get it. So they yeah. really do go together. And uh, as far as Boomtown goes, I I always thought it was a weak episode because not a whole lot happens. But watching it this time out of context, not watching it as part of the whole series one, it's a really good episode. Yeah. Uh, you know, and um, to me, the best part was the cafe scene. Mm-hmm. So why is it most really good modern Doctor Who scenes take place in a cafe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's there's a lot to think about in this episode. It's it's really good. Yeah, no, she's. I mean, um, Annette Badlin too is. Yeah. Uh, without without fail, just one of my favorite um, 
Doctor Who actors to watch. Yeah, she was great. All right, so that's my first pairing. Again, it's a bit of a stretch, uh, and I know it's talking about it a little more than I needed to <laughs> about that one. Because uh, I don't think a lot of people know Dark Star, and it does require a little bit of explanation. But our next film, there's a very good chance that folks have seen it or one of the four versions of it. But specifically, uh, we go from Dark Star in 1974, we're going to move ahead four years, to uh, a movie that I had just seen for the first time this year. I thought I had seen it prior to, and it turns out that I'd never watched it from start to finish. Uh, Brent, that would be a 1978 film. Philip Kaufman's Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Now, that's your choice. Why did you choose this film? Well, here's a shock for you. I've never seen the original, and I just watched this 1978 version for the very first time about a month ago. Um, I'll tell you how it happened. I was roaming through Twitter one day, and I came across a really cool account. I don't know if you've seen it called Scarred for Life, Mm -hmm. and it's where they post things that scared them as children. Uh, on TV or movies or something, and um, or even books sometime, sometimes. Uh, and they posted the final clip of this movie as disturbing them to no end. So as I'm scrolling down, I only saw Donald Sutherland standing on the street corner and then a woman in a red dress or coat or something. And knowing that I'd always wanted to see it, I stopped. And I, I turned off my Twitter and I, I, uh, I stopped looking. <clears throat> so I, I picked up the movie at uh, my local DVD rental store. Yes, I have one. See above for Alamo Draft House. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I watched it with one of my sons, and, and we really enjoyed it. And I was like, man, this would really go well with uh, another story that we'll talk about in a minute for Doctor Who. But um, as soon as I saw this, I was like, oh, this is going on the list. Um Lots of really good scenes in here. There are actually a couple of things that remind me of a film that we're going to be talking about in a little bit, one of your picks. Um, and <clears throat> But the scene with the dog, with the human head, yes, that was, re- that was really freaky. <laughs> yeah, great it's, scene. It's set up maybe 10 or 15 minutes earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and if unless you're really paying attention, you don't really kind of notice that. But then it happens later, and you're like, oh, my God. Um and no spoilers, but the end was pretty shocking. And and silent yeah. credits, which is very rare in Hollywood films. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so just to describe what the movie's about for people who have not seen it, uh, it is an alien invasion story, except uh, this is where the term pod people come from, where a, a space seed lands on... Uh, Earth and it grows these plants and the plants have a are actually alien beings. They have a link. They form a psychic link and if left alone, they essentially take the memories from a human being uh, and turn them into goop while they become a perfect replica of that being. And the idea is that they continue to expand and expand and expand and expand until the entire population is taken over. We have no idea where they came from. We have no idea how to stop them for the most part. <laughs> and it and it's really a, uh, unlike say, like your Independence Day, where we have these alien invasion stories that are big and bold and a lot of explosions and a lot of, you know, uh, jet fighter, alien spacecraft dogfighting. This is about a very small group of people, including Jeff Goldblum, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, which is like which is a nice kind of treat. Yeah, you got Leonard Nimoy in it as well. Uh, a lot of really great actors. It's a re- really well acted film, but it's it's sort of like I would maybe compare it to something like Signs, right? That M Night Shyamalan film where it's an alien invasion on a much smaller scale because it's personal because you're just with this one group, and it takes them for a while to figure out what's going on. All of it takes place on the ground. You know they. They're, they're almost never driving anywhere. A lot of it's like foot traffic, and so it just feels really down-to-earth and personal, and that's sort of where the joy comes from. Uh, I was raised on the original black and white. 
Um, and I've seen, uh, God, I've seen, I think, three of the four versions. Abel Ferreira did one that I haven't seen, but the, just uh, Invasion with Nicole Kidman and I think Daniel Craig I saw. I don't remember liking it at all. But, um, yeah. Oh, I had no idea that was a remake. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I'm looking at my, my letterbox account, and I watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers 1978 on February 20th of this year. Hmm. So, you know, 220, 2020. Uh, and it was really uh, revelatory. Uh, I, it's one of those films that are like I'm trying not to watch the same movie more than once in a year. Uh, to try, trying to get to 52 films that I hadn't seen before, and now I'm almost at 60. Uh, but I think by next year I probably will rewatch it because um, uh, it's one that I, I know I'd seen on television. So I like with all the edits, the TV edits uh, from start to finish. It's a, a phenomenal flick, a really good one. What did you pair it with? Well, um, I could have gone several different ways with this one. Yeah. There's a there's a few Doctor Who uh, stories that are uh, similar to this in in different ways, um, but I wanted to go with something more modern, so I went with the Rebel Flesh and the Almost People two part. Yeah. Rory and Amy, they may not trust both of us. Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Inevitably. <laughs> I'm glad we're on the same wavelength. Uh, see, great minds. Exactly. So, what's the plan? Well, save them all, humans and gangers. To an order. Sounds wonderful. Is that what you were thinking? Yes, it's just so inspiring to hear me say it. <laughs> oh, come on! So, what now, Doctor? Well, time to get cracking, Doctor. Mm. Hello! Sorry, but we had to establish a few ground rules for me later. Protocol. Protocol? Very posh. Well, a protocol between us, otherwise it gets horribly embarrassing, potentially confusing. Okay, well, I'm glad you solved the problem of confusing. That's sarcasm. She's very good at sarcasm. Um, it's uh, the two-parter from season six, the Matt Smith story, where uh, uh, what our podcasters used to call the pudding people. <laughs> um, <clears throat> these were written by Matthew Graham, who created Life on Mars and mm-hmm. Ashes to Ashes, both of which are excellent and I'm sorry to say, far far better than these. I, I thought these were going to be a really good two-parter um, episodes, but um, I don't know. I, I found them... I haven't watched them recently, but I recall it being quite boring. But uh, it's about growing new humans or clones from a liquidy plastic substance. They call them gangers. And you have the trope of which one is the real person. Sure. You know? Much like the Body Snatchers movie, so... Um, I thought those went fairly well together for that reason. Agreed, yeah. I mean, you have some great scenes where we get both uh, the quote-unquote original plus the ganger in the same scene, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is always good. I, I believe they're created for um, acid work, right? Like the idea is that they're doing work with mining acids, and it's so easy for someone to fall in. Uh, they think of the gangers as being... You link to the gangers with some kind of um, psychic link correct and like you operate them at, from a distance as if you were operating your own body and then when you're done you can just throw them away problem is they have sentience uh and they keep right Some, keep something happened on. something blew up or happened and it gave them their their sentient mm-hmm. uh self yeah and it's one of those episodes that uh ends in a way that you think is going to have repercussions later in the series and um uh, doesn't like you know you're kind of expecting like wouldn't it be cool if the gangers came back and somehow uh the, well i guess i guess that's the impossible astronaut season right season six yeah series six where like we're in a situation where uh early on in the season the doctor is killed and you have to figure out like how how he's going to get out of that and oh gangers that's going to be the answer uh, yeah a lot of people did think that i remember that mm-hmm. and uh, and they did have the thing at the end with amy right so yeah. It no, it's it's a it's a. I agree with you. I don't think it's one of the strongest episodes. Uh, it, I think I really disliked it the first time I saw it, and and every time I've watched it since, I think I find more to like of it. I think there's some really interesting emotional beats with it. I think it's a really good Rory episode. Um, it's a little odd that Rory comes to the defense of one of these gangers a little too quickly uh, and a little too vehemently, but. At the same time, it's nice to give Rory something to, to do other than just fawn over Amy. Um, so, no, it's. I think that's. I mean, it's a. It's a really good match. I think it's a, a really good pairing. Um, so you get 
let's see two, yeah two a two-parter plus a two-hour movie yeah that's a good it's a good evening if you're if you're looking forward to spending some time on the couch yeah and i, I think what's interesting too is your selection of both invasion of the body snatchers and the ganger um hits on if you wanted to make this like a triple or quadruple feature uh a lot of those same themes are found in my next selection which <laughs> is uh identity and replication and that is of course the first of two movies we're going to be talking about this evening that came out on the very same day in the amazing summer of 1982 and because I started with a John Carpenter film, why not continue with a John Carpenter film? And this is my favorite movie of all time, and that is John Carpenter's The Thing. I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. Bennings, go get Childs. What is this? What's, the kind of- What's going on? What's kind of- hey, Palmer, what is it? I don't know. Wait, Childs! Mac wants the flamethrower. Mac wants the what? That's what he said. Now move! Damn it. <laughs> Well, anybody that knows you or Paul Heath of the Ferris Project podcast know that John Carpenter's The Thing is your favorite film of all time. Yeah. Um, I also love this movie quite a bit. I bought the Blu-ray a few years ago, and it's the most awesome transfer of a film to HD I've ever seen. It looks fantastic. Um, but it's a great base under siege movie. It really is, is a, yeah. It's it's a, That's a theme for a lot of Doctor Who stories, so... Um, uh, it's, it's very creepy. It's a good mystery because you never know who's hiding mm-hmm. the creature inside them. Um, some really great characters in the group. It's a great movie. What, what makes this your favorite movie, though? Well, it's interesting. I was looking at um, lists of some of my favorite movies from like 20 years ago. I, I think it popped up on Facebook, maybe. It was not quite 20 years ago, like 13, 14 years ago. And it was like, um, you know, list 15 movies that have forever changed you and and i look at the list and like the thing isn't in it even though i had seen it before and at the time i had watched it i think it's one of those films that every time i watch it i get something new out of it i think um about a decade or so ago i did a a kind of a, a carpenter watch and rediscovered it and you know i'll watch it three or four times a year um i've got the board games uh it's the 40th anniversary of this film I went and saw it in the theaters uh, about a month or so ago. Um, I, you know, it's a gross film. There's a there's a lot of horror. There's a lot of practical effects to it. But there's also, uh, it's a real personal film. If you take all the special effects out, it's like 12 guys arguing in the snow um, <laughs> for two hours. And that doesn't sound great to a lot of people. But uh, there's, a, there's a constant level of tension that just keeps on ratcheting up and up and up and up. I mean, admittedly, the creature effects are one of the main reasons to love it. Kurt Russell's great. Everyone's, everyone who acts in it is, is fantastic. Um, if I'm an expert on anything in this world, aside from you know, comic books and role-playing games, it is John Carpenter's The Thing. I, I think I've done more podcast episodes uh, about this movie than just about anything. Um, and I, I can put it on at any point in time. Uh, assuming that you know it's not a children's birthday party, and just watch it and sit down and, and, and enjoy it. Uh, like I said, I, I always feel like I get something new out of it. Um, it's I find it's as intense as it is. I find it incredibly um, just familiar and comforting. It's it's my comfort movie because my other favorite movies are intense dramas that I can't watch regularly. Uh, I, you know, it has to be like every two or three years between those, and we will eventually talk about those films uh, later. So. This is one that you can definitely rewatch. It has a really high rewatch factor to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I should probably I... explain what it is. <laughs> like it's like if like look if you are listening to this and you've never seen the thing, stop the podcast and go watch <laughs> the thing. Um, you know it's it is uh, the story of a uh, a group at an Antarctic base um, and uh, a helicopter 
shows up. It's a Norwegian helicopter. They are two men firing at a husky for unexplained reasons. Um, the the helicopter is destroyed. The men are killed. The husky is adopted by this group, and it turns out that it's not a husky. <laughs> uh, it is an alien that can over time take over the physical form just similar to our invasion of the body snatchers to the point where um we're not 100 percent certain if the people who have been replaced by the thing uh know that they have been replaced by the thing uh and when it reveals itself it does so in the most splendid grotesque practical effects you've ever seen no movie has ever topped this film as far as as far as I'm concerned, as far as practical effects are concerned, this movie is a remake. It, it's based off of a short story called Who Goes There by um, John W. Campbell. It was originally made in the 1950s as The Thing from Another World by Howard Hawks, who was yep. uh, Carpenter's favorite director. It it has been remade several times. There's a, a The Thing on a Train called The Horror Express that came out with Telly Savalas and Peter Cushing. Uh, and then fairly recently, I think it's 2011, they made a prequel to The Thing about the Norwegian base camp just called The Thing, um, which uh, I have not seen all the way through. <laughs> I haven't either. Because the problem is uh, the movie uses CGI instead of practical effects, and it's really bad CGI. And I kind of just turn it off disgusted every time I get to the point where the, we start to get – it starts to get quote-unquote good or should get good. I can't handle it. Hmm. So – yeah. The Doctor Who episode that I'm pairing this with, having just rewatched it, uh, I realize that it's probably better to have referred to... It feels like it's almost more of an homage to the original thing from another world, but I still think it works out really well in which uh, explorers in an Antarctic base discover something in the ice, they bring it back, it thaws, uh, and then it proceeds to kill a bunch of them, and that is... Uh, the first two episodes of The Seeds of Doom. Tell them to keep a constant guard upon the pod and not to touch it till I arrive. What you have done could result in the total destruction of all life on this planet. What is a crinoid? I mean, what does it do? I suppose you would call it a galactic weed. It's dangerous. It's deadlier than any weed you know. How's Winlet? He's turning into some sort of a hideous monster. Where is the pod? If we don't find that pot before it germinates, it'll be the end of everything. Everything, you understand? Even your pension! The crinoid is an uncontrollable carnivore that's getting bigger and more powerful by the minute. People are replaceable, Scorby. The crinoid is unique. You want me to die? There is no chance! Somehow the crinoid can channel its powers to other plants. All the vegetation on this planet is about to turn hostile. The search for knowledge knows no boundaries. Nothing will stop me now. I will cultivate the crinoid. Miss Smith will be our subject. Like so. No! Scoring! 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 We should also say this This and the next film we're talking about did po- really poorly in, in theaters, um, mainly because of 1982, which is the, the single greatest um, summer, three True. months of, of movies in, in cinema's history. Um, you know, a lot of people would argue that 1999 is the single greatest year uh, for movies, period. But as far as you're just looking at the summer, you know, a three-month period, 1982, especially for genre films, is exceptionally good. Um, but not for this movie. Uh, this almost ruined Carpenter's career. Because E.T. had come out um, a couple of weeks before, and everyone was just gaga for super friendly, heartfelt aliens. And those that, you know, rip, rip people apart didn't go over so great um and carpenter lost his gig next gig which was going to be the um film adaptation of stephen king's firestarter um and uh yeah it 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 apparently still hurts him when people tell him how much of a a masterpiece this film is because it is a masterpiece i mean i I will hear nothing to the contrary um (laughs) but you can tell like the the man was deeply deeply wounded by making a movie that he that he loved he truly loved uh and it, it not succeeding but yeah the wilford brimley i mean just wilford brimley in general in, in this film this is you know pre-cocoon wilford brimley if i'm not mistaken so pre-diabetes <laughs> pre-diabetes uh and he he uh 
he's great. I mean, he was sort of like yeah. they wanted a character actor who people didn't recognize and everyone in these films like they've been in a bunch of stuff but you they weren't like household names kurt russell yes but um you know it's supposed to be an ensemble cast kurt russell really is the standout star of this well sorry rob Bottin, the the special effects practical effects designer is is the star but uh yeah and so i decided to pair this with uh a tom baker film i think most folks could probably guess um as i've said before um John Carpenter's The Thing is based off of The Thing from Another Planet, A Thing from Another World, which in the film, rather than being a weird biological entity, it's a uh, vegetable. It is a plant creature. It's essentially plant Frankenstein. And they went to uh, that well for this one, which is uh, 1976 Tom Baker's story, The Seeds of Doom. Well, that's a good That's a good pick. That's a good pairing. Seeds of Doom is one of my favorite Doctor Who stories of all time. And I can totally see how it connects to the thing. Um, why did you pick it to pair? I mean, again, it is the first, especially the first two parts. It is most definitely an homage to the initial thing from another world. You know, an Antarctic group finds a seed pod in the frozen the ice. They thaw it out. It becomes it. It takes over essentially uh, and goes on a rampage. The, the it's a six parter, right? So mm-hmm. the next four episodes really have more to do with a kind of a day of the triffids sort of a story minus mm-hmm. the blind blindness subplot but um really it's just those first two shots which have i just rewatching it I, I don't have the blu-ray of it yet and, and re-watching it has made me just go i need the blu-ray of this but the model work and those opening two shots are really well done i don't know what kind of budgets doctor who had during this time period but they make the most of it. Like I think the the crinoids costume is is really cool, and the Arctic yeah. base is really good. And um, the Doctor, actually, let me ask you this because you probably know this better. Why doesn't the Doctor have the TARDIS in the first two episodes? Doesn't he come in on a on a, a, a helicopter or something? A helicopter, yeah. They yeah. fly in on a helicopter rather than the TARDIS. He's like, oh well, well we're going to leave immediately, and then like they're there like the next day versus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the TARDIS, which would have been there immediately. I don't remember what comes before this. Sorry, bad bad fan. Um, yeah, so but... they're sort of stranded there, like the thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they're you know they're at this compound compound in the Arctic. So, and the whole second episode is less about the monster that's kind of moving around, potentially killing people, and more about the human drama of people just stuck in the ice and, and are potentially freezing to death. Like yeah. it's it's very very similar to both versions of the thing at, at that, that point in time. Yeah. And it's uh, the closest that Dr. Who has gotten to a James Bond film. I think if, if like the whole six parter. Yes. Uh, Harrison chase is one of the best villains of all time. Agreed to me. Uh, it's gritty. It's action packed. Cliffhangers are excellent. It's just, uh, it's one of my favorites. Scorby's this, a great, um, Scorby. Yeah. Yeah. Like the, like the physical, you know, like chase is not a physical threat. Scorby's the physical threat, but Scorby is a really good like three-dimensional character like you yeah. you think scorby's kind of one note and scorby changes over the course of the six episodes and so you really see a character arc with scorby which you don't normally get and like the doctor teaming up with the the quote-unquote bad guy really well done um this is a uh, robert bank stewart script yep. right yeah and yeah Douglas he wrote Canfield. uh he wrote um terror of the zygons yeah oh my god that guy likes his plant uh Uki Uki aliens, <laughs> uh, Terror of the Good Zygons, another one of my favorites. So yeah, no, this is a really good one. I think it's like, uh, I think I really wanted to just have an excuse to revisit this and talk about John Carpenter's The Thing. So I mean, there's no reason not to to pair the two of them together. They're they're so very obviously closely related. Oh yeah, yep. So speaking of 1982, that brings us to our next and final movie selection. Brent, how are you going to end this? I'm going to end with a big bomb <laughs> no um i mean it was it was a big bomb it did not yeah, do well at all i didn't know that about the thing or blade runner that it didn't do well in 82 i, I remember they both came out in 82 i uh, also didn't know they came out on the same day mm-hmm. so that's uh that's pretty good uh trivia there i didn't know but um yeah i'm talking about blade runner how many questions does it usually take to spot I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 
20, 30 cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions and consequently we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. So Blade Runner is a weird one for me. I, I know I picked it as one of my favorites, and it is, but it's only been recently. Um, I saw it a couple of times a long time ago, and I thought it was just okay. I think maybe I didn't understand it very well. I, I think that was because it was uh, a version, uh, one of the old versions I must have seen. I, I knew there were a couple of different ones, but it was only this year I found out there were actually seven versions of this film. <laughs> <laughs> um, seven different cuts. So this summer I went to see the final cut on the big screen. And nice. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, I followed along pretty well. Can't wait to see the sequel. I haven't seen the sequel yet. Oh, wow. Yeah, I heard wow. it was really good. Um, but yeah, I, really, I mean, obviously I was a big fan of Harrison Ford because of uh, Star Wars, Han Solo. And so I tried to watch when I could. I was a kid. I couldn't go to the theater by myself, you know, but I tried to catch these on television or later on on VHS. Or uh, that's That was my draw. And plus it was sci-fi. And Rutger Hauer, of course. Mm-hmm. Love Rutger Hauer, um, except for Hobo with a Shotgun, which we just talked about a little bit ago before we started recording. (laughs) (laughs) He was the only good thing in that movie. Um, The Shotgun was pretty cool. The Shotgun was cool. So Blade Runner, for you, what's what's Blade Runner like for you? Yeah, so I saw this when I was 10. So... um uh, you know, I, I referred back to the list of, of movies that uh, had an indelible impact on me that, you know, the thing wasn't on, but Blade Runner was on the top of the list. This was my favorite film for, I'd say, a good decade or two. And unlike you, like the opposite of you, as I have gotten older, the film's impact has lessened, and it could be that. I've just watched it a hundred times. It could be that. Uh, I find the seven different versions of it to be very frustrating uh, because it keeps on feeling like now with the new final one, with uh, narration, now without narration, now with this one scene of two women wearing hockey masks dancing in a tube. Um, (laughs) You know, the new transfer for the final cut is gorgeous. It's a beautiful film. I will never argue the technical aspects of it. This is a a movie that changed cinema, um, you know, Alien in 78, Star Wars in 77 really kind of focuses on grimy space future, and this is a very dystopian, quasi-realistic, there's a lot of rain, there's a lot of garbage, Um, you know, humanity has already moved to the stars, and these are the people left behind in this earth, Harrison Ford's amazing, he he is a, uh, a Blade Runner who tracks down replicants, you know, these, these artificial beings who, like our gangers, do the works of men and like our bombs in dark star uh just don't want to die even though they're tools and that's what they're programmed for they want more so you know we've really got a theme running through these these four films which is um beings that that want more life and some of them are going to get that life by taking it from human beings and in some of these episodes you're kind of rooting for the 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 other rather than the humans and i think uh certainly uh blade runner is one of them i mean this this is a visual masterpiece uh absolutely yeah yeah yeah. um in fact there's (laughs) i mentioned i mentioned two of my other favorite movies along with um john carpenter's the thing another one is called the mentor and candidate we will talk about it i eventually will pair it with uh the deadly sass i mean there's it it that's Deadly Assassin is essentially the Venturian candidate. And there's a scene in Blade Runner that is an homage to Venturian um, candidate. And we'll talk about that when we talk about Venturian candidate. And if you're a film buff, please try to figure out what it is. But but it's it's very, very clearly an homage from that film. Um, yeah, I, I've watched this 
a lot. Uh, I I could probably close my eyes and, and watch it in my head, uh, start to finish. Um, I've read several books on it. Um, yeah, uh, it's this is a VHS that I I wore out many times over. It's a a DVD that I probably have like six different copies of from all the different versions. <laughs> I have the Blu-ray. I have the I think I have an HD. I don't even have an HD player anymore, but like I think I've got that. I know I had it on Laserdisc at one point in time. So this is one of those things wherever the new medium creates, I bought Blade Runner probably first. Uh, it was one of the first DVDs I owned too. So, yeah, big fan of it. The real question is, what out of all of Doctor Who did you pair that could possibly compare to Blade Runner? Well, another one of my all-time favorite Doctor Who stories called The Robots of Death. Are the mechanical men friendly? Robots don't have feelings. It's the people they serve we must hope are friendlier. Perhaps there are no people here. What? Robots don't need chairs, and certainly not padded ones. Because they have no feelings. Please identify yourselves. Well, I'm the doctor, and that's Leela. I wonder if it's possible for us to speak to the person in charge. I'd like to thank him for saving our lives. I command. Well, thank you for saving our lives. So this is one of those Agatha Christie-type stories set on a sand miner where the suspects start dying off one by one. It's always been comfort viewing for me. We had um, Graham Burke on recently. He talked about Pyramids of Mars being a big comfort viewing story for him. This is one of mine. I love everything about it. The music, the pacing, the creepiness of the robots, uh, the comedy of D84. And yeah, the production decisions kind of blew who the killer was pretty early on. <laughs> um, a couple of the cast members were horrible actors, but I overlook all of that when I watch this. Uh, Tom Baker's on top form. Louise is fantastic. Just a great story that never gets old. Yeah, and like Blade Runner, um, the real standout performance is the, the set and the costumes. Yeah. Um, the sand, the sand miner is great the robots are great these kind of elite rich folks who like just look be super bored like you know we, we look at something like dark star where you have the these blue collar workers uh i think i call them white collar workers for some strange reason when i was talking about earlier blue collar workers in space these are like the one percent on a sand miner like why are they here and they <laughs> look so fabulous they look something out of like an urta poster um uh yeah i love this story i love this story and i think it's been probably three or four years since i've watched it um but i mean it's exceptional i think every i think it's a good doctor story i think it's a a great leela story um i think it's dare i say it i know doctor who fans uh hesitate to use this term i think it's iconic as all get out oh yeah Uh, and it's a a real perfect pairing for with Blade Runner. I think it's a really excellent choice. I think what's interesting too, and again, you know, perfect uh, what is existence, who deserves more life, uh why are they doing this? It I mean it's it, it, we could have paired almost any of these movies with any of these stories minus Boomtown. Boomtown um I'm sure we could have I could have probably done um, you know, the reality bomb one and would have made more <laughs> sense to do that, but um, any of the other three stories could have gone with any of these movies. I yeah, think. it's it's really weird. Um, I did not even notice until we started talking today that all of these have themes running through them that are the same. And um, I was joking with you earlier that you could have paired Dark Star with um, Nightmare of Eden because it's about stoners mm-hmm. in space. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. So I, I don't so, think any um, of the other themes would have uh, would have carried over, but. <laughs> I could probably argue it one way or the other. No, it's true. Well, when we first talked about doing this, I was definitely going to do Manchurian Candidate and The Deadly Assassin. That was like, oh, you know, I definitely want to talk about that. I did notice that both Invasion of the Body Snatchers and uh, Blade Runner do have those similar themes. And I thought, well, there's a good chance of talking about the thing. That certainly has a very similar theme. Um, but yeah, it, it worked out really well. Uh, tell me a little bit more. I'm kind of curious. We haven't really talked about this. When did do you remember the, watching Robots of Death for the very first time? No, 
I remember when I first started watching Doctor Who, it was maybe 81. I'm mm-hmm. showing my age there. Uh, I was in the fourth grade. Uh, there was a guy in my class that I became friends with, and then he told me about Doctor Who. So, you should watch this really cool show on Channel 4, which was our local PBS station. And um, it comes on every night at like 6 or something, and I was like, okay, I'll check it out. And I think I remember watching uh, Genesis of the Daleks, part one, was my very first Doctor Who story. I remember seeing nice. it. And they were cycling through some older Tom Tom Baker stories at that time. So it's possible I saw Robots of Death. I can't remember. I remember the, the first new Doctor Who that I saw was season 18. And that's mm. probably one of the reasons why it's still my favorite season but uh that's well it's also a very good season oh it is it's awesome uh but robots of death no i i I remember uh they also used to show the uh, omnibus versions of doctor who on saturdays on Mm -hmm. channel four and i remember seeing robots of death uh omnibus version several times on different saturdays throughout the 80s yeah i mean i i watched doctor who uh as a pilgrimage like I, i went back to the classic era in 2012 so you know i would say that i probably got to this somewhere in the summer of 2012 um and i was already a, a fairly big tom baker fan uh i was very much a big leela fan you know not leela had only been on for a couple episodes i guess at this point in time and um i was just i think this is one of the first and maybe only episodes stories of doctor who that after watching it rather than putting the next story in because i was i was racing to 2013 I think I watched it a second time. Uh, it felt like something that it really had, a, and then there were none feel to it. Yeah. Um, and again, the aesthetics are are just lovely, and I agree that the the ending is kind of dumb. Um, like the resolution <laughs> of the story is kind of weird. It comes out of nowhere. Uh, the mystery is a bit of a bummer. But uh, I was listening to some podcast on alfred hitchcock the other day and, and they were talking about the mystery isn't always about for hitchcock who done it but finding out who done it or how it was done halfway through the film and then dealing with the repercussions and the suspense that comes after that uh this is this was an interview with ryan johnson who had done knives out and um it's really made me rethink how i watch hitchcock as opposed to something like 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 Agatha Christie, so I kind boy I I tell you I really kind of want to put Robots of Death back, and I think <laughs> of all the stories that we've talked about, uh, certainly uh, that would be the one that I would I would get a chance to. And I don't have the Blu-ray uh, with this, uh, so I would I would very much like to get that at some point in time. It's I definitely think. one of those that falls under the list of. Uh stories you can watch over and over and they don't get old and also mm. stories you can introduce a new fan to yes yeah it's well yeah. the thing about robots of death and you're absolutely right i would introduce someone to it but ooh, it's tricky it's sort of like introducing someone to blink even though blink has like it's blink is brilliant but it almost has nothing to do with doctor who but robots of death that's a high watermark you know you have to be really careful <laughs> right. about what you introduce them to after that because there's there's not a lot of classic Who stories as good as Robots of Death, in my opinion. Uh, I'm yeah. sure everyone's got their favorites, but like, yeah, that's a tough act to follow. So yeah, very cool. So Brent, uh, what do you think? Should we just change this uh, Who and Company? Just be a movie review and pairing, uh, <laughs> just from here on out. Just forget about having guests, or should we have some amazing guests moving forward? Definitely having some. Great guests coming up soon. We've already got a couple on the list that we're uh, we're about to record with. So we are getting back to our regular scheduled program. <laughs> but this is fun to do maybe once a year. Yeah, and I agree. You know, this is this could probably fall into the traditional April slot. But once again, folks, I am still in grad school. And so, like, my uh, ability to watch entire seasons of television plus the beginning of school semester has made it a little harder to get some of our guests. Um, so... But I think this worked out great. I, I'm really happy. It was gives me a chance to revisit movies that I like. And, um, yeah, I, I kind of really want to watch Invasion of the Body Snatchers and 
uh, Blade Runner again too. Maybe even Dark Star. No, it's not Dark Star. Um, but yeah, cool man. Well, thank you so much, and uh, thank you for joining us at Who and Company. Who and Company, come for the fandom. Stay for the company. Thanks for joining us at Who and Company. Special shout out to Pixel Who for providing our logo. They can be found at facebook.com slash pixelwho. Who and Company can be found on iHeartRadio.com and Spotify. Or you can download the show directly from whoandcompany.libsyn.com. Contact us on Twitter at whoandcompany. Support the show on patreon.com slash whoandcompany. Or email us at whoandcompany at yahoo.com. Thanks, and see you next month.
Yeah.